Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The fight over your dinner table. No, it's not between you and perhaps your children or your other relatives. It's the fight between grocery stores to deliver the food that would actually end up on your table. Here to tell us more about the grocery store wars is Scott Mushkin, Senior Retail and Staples Analyst for Wolf Research. Scott, always a pleasure. Uh, Give us your uh, sort of um, thoughts on the cost that is being borne by companies like Amazon to actually get the food and products to the table of their consumers and customers, because that's not cheap. They say it's free if you're a prime customer, but somehow, somewhere, someone's paying for it. Yeah, it's a great point, Pam, and thanks again for having me on. Hi, Lisa. So, yeah, I mean, I think the challenge with consumables, and particularly those everyday reordable items like oh, a toothbrush or toothpaste, Tide, deodorant, I mean, we as consumers would like them delivered to our, our house. Our, our research shows the challenge is, is it's not that economical to get us it, to get us those products. And so I think there's this push and pull in trying to understand how the economics will work, uh, what the model will be like as we go forward over the next five to ten years. Um, and Amazon's, you know, obviously uh, bought Whole Foods. It's in what we consider the driver's seat of trying to put an omni-channel spin on consumables. Um, and we had just they had the announcement out of Walmart it's going to be delivering from a lot of its stores. So the grocery wars are definitely taking place. Uh, we think they favor Amazon significantly um, as they don't have, they haven't built out their assets. They're in the process of doing that. And for other bricks-and-mortar companies, it's, it's tough. I mean, they're having to follow Amazon, who's now setting the strategic vision for the, for the industry. All right. So I'm just wondering, so Amazon might have the upper hand, but they've tried to get into this industry before and failed. And this is notoriously hard, uh, hard nut to crack as far as food delivery and uh, replacing brick and mortar. Do you think that the stock reaction, which has been fierce with with grocers like uh, Kroger and bankruptcies of an increasing number of such companies, do you think it's overdone at this point? You know, actually, I don't. Uh, and I think the challenge is we go, we look to China, we look to China and what Alibaba is doing with HEMA. And we think the purchase of Am- uh, Amazon of Whole Foods is a watershed event where what we're going to see, I think, is a blend, an omni-channel blend develop. Um, and it's a darn shame because the stores had a huge home field advantage we've talked about uh, before where people still buy almost all their fresh at the store. Um, and what we're seeing is that home field advantage being surrendered to the vision of, of Amazon. And I think it's going to be a, like I said, an omni-channel blend. And it will incorporate some bricks and mortar stores, as you've seen them buy, buy Whole Foods. Um, but, so I think they, you know, they have some of their best people working on this. We think they're going to combine Amazon Now, Amazon Fresh, and Whole Foods into one offering. Um, but the, the idea is to really bring omni-channel, the omni-channel experience, and incorporate stores uh, into into that offering to make it a little bit more economical. All right. So, so far this year, Kroger and Walmart have lost more than $30 billion in market value combined. Other grocers have also uh, seen their shares plunge. Is there a specific company that you're looking at that has uh, more pain to go? 
So, so we've been pretty bullish on the U.S. economy and what's going on with the tax, uh, the, the tax cuts. We think nominal growth in the U.S. is going to pick up. Um, but that's really a short-term call, short-term relief for an industry that's under extraordinary pain and change. Um, so our long-term vision of Staples retailing, as we call it, is, is, some, is, is very negative. And the reason is we think Amazon's going to grab 20 share up from less than 3% uh, share right now. Yeah. And, but, but, and that 20 shares got to come from someone. Well, right, but, but very negative, meaning uh, how many bankruptcies or how much devastation with respect to specific grocers? Well, we've already seen some announcements. We had uh, Winn-Dixie, which was a, a private company but had public debt. They, they did, they're doing a prepack uh, uh, bankruptcy uh, tops up in, uh, in the northern part of the U.S. I think this is going to be you know, part of uh, what we see. One of the things that we're... We're, we've been thinking about a lot is content. You know, who has content that people may pay for? In other words, you already have one subscription to Prime, so you're paying $99 a month, and what that's going to get you is a lot. It's going to get you access to Whole Foods, Now, Fresh, uh, obviously all the video content that Amazon has. So what other retailers are set up with content specific to them? We actually think this actually favors, they're not public companies, but we think this favors some of the smaller private supermarkets. Uh, someone like HEB down in Texas, very good grocer, a very good merchant, and, and probably able to charge for delivery. The other company that we like is Sprouts, uh, Sprouts Farmer's Market. 30,000 square foot store, you know, right in called the you know, best pure foods, pure play. Uh, natural and organic, fresh. So we like uh, we like Sprouts. All the other companies, public and uh, some of them are private, owned by private equity. You know, we get really nervous because a lot of share is going to have to move. Uh, in 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 our opinion, and when that share moves, it puts a lot of pressure. The other thing is, it's just costing more to do business. So. You know, Walmart, you know, they're going to have 2,000 stores that have click and, you know, click and collect. They're going to have another, you know, 800 stores delivering. That's all added costs. And unless you're able to charge, um, it's going to really hurt the economics of, of the business as we move forward. Same thing for Kroger. You, you know, Scott, I'm surprised uh, that, you, that I'm talking to you. I think you're in Mississippi. I thought you'd be, t- you'd be at the uh, Shop Talk uh, uh, trade show because that's you know where a lot of the uh, Amazon and eBay, Alphabet, Facebook, and all these companies are giving presentations about the future of retail. And one of the, the the points I was reading about earlier is that Google is integrating the retail product categories like you know from Walmart or Target with what they describe as the universal shopping cart. They're going to share the checkout page and the online payments with a commission pricing model. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Google's basically going to start charging some of these retailers for their search. Um, and, again, somewhat Amazon has an advantage here. A lot of searches start right on Amazon for product. Um, and so they have a an ecosystem that includes all of this. And so if you're using Google and Google has a lot of power, they're going to start charging you as a retailer. Um, I actually think that's an advantage to Amazon um, and another the reason to fear the retailers' economics, not that they're necessarily going to go away and go bankrupt all of these guys, but the retailers' economics are going to be under pressure. Um, and, of course, we saw today with an Amazon announcement that pressure t- tends to roll downhill to some of these manufacturers. So manufacturers are going to be under pressure, too, particularly, again, if you don't have good content, if you're not, you don't have things that people are willing to pay, pay for. Scott Mushkin, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Mushkin, Managing Director uh, and senior, senior Staples Retail Analyst with Wolf Research, normally in New York, but today in Mississippi. 
Right now, the shares of Facebook, they are lower by 5%. The company grappling with backlash over its role in spreading disinformation. Here to tell us a little bit more about the story and what the reaction in Congress might be is our own technology reporter, Sarah Fryer, joining us from San Francisco. Sarah, thanks very much for being with us. Any updates in terms of the, the Facebook reaction to this and also reaction to the news that Alex Stamos, the chief information security officer, is set to leave the company in August? Well, I have a story today that explains how Facebook made this into a crisis almost by the way it responded to it. Uh, basically, by uh, preempting the news reports with its own blog post on Friday explaining that it was suspending Cambridge Analytica, it made it seem like they had their own information on Cambridge Analytica obtaining the data. They didn't. So now Facebook has, as they're spiraling into crisis, they have to show people that they don't actually know if the reports are true on their end, so they can't take stronger action or have Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg speak until they have completed an internal audit. So they've really put themselves in this really difficult position uh, that they didn't need to be in, where, where they're sort of trying to undo some of the weight that they gave to the reports by preempting them. So, Sarah, is this why the shares are down so much? Because the botched response suggests, to, suggests a vacuum of either leadership or uh, appropriate response thought in the C-suite? Or is it sort of a game changer now that the FTC, the Federal uh, Trade Commission, is getting involved and uh, President Trump also commenting and saying uh, just this morning that uh, all Americans should expect privacy of data? I think there's a number of factors. I think Facebook made this a big story in part by uh, taking action before the story happened. Um, But I, I do think that this is a moment in in all of Facebook news where people look at the the way things have worked and they're starting to say, wait, this is not good. This is not helpful for our uh, users of these products that are so dominant around the world. So we need to start asking questions about the way it's always worked. Facebook's um, stance here is that this is, this is a, a, problem that's sort of been resolved by an update they made uh, in 2014 that they have, uh, you know, they have to figure out if this is actually true, audit it. Nobody trusts them anymore. We have people calling for Zuckerberg or Sandberg to testify in front of lawmakers on both sides of the Atlantic. The FTC is now involved. This is a point where people are saying that they don't expect that Facebook will have users' best interests in heart when they when they go and try to solve these problems on their own and then reassure the public that they've done so. Uh, Sarah, maybe you could just also speak to the uh, perhaps confrontation or uh, the constant back and forth between those uh, people at Facebook who are more eager to look at ways to make money than those who are fighting for the protection of data and information that has been voluntarily entered into the Facebook system by users. So Facebook is saying that the information that was accessed by Alexander Kogan, the creator of this personality app, he that he did it in a way that was valid per Facebook's policies at the time, which allowed people to give information not just on themselves, but on their friends. 
So 270,000 people using the app resulted in information on 50 million people. Facebook doesn't allow that anymore, but per their policies at the time, that was routine. And um, what people are saying now is, is, okay, we understand that you changed those policies, Facebook, but did you ever look into, you know, once these third parties receive data on wide swaths of people, did you ever look into whether they were doing right by it, did, oh, protecting it? Um, of course, in this case, Alexander Kogan gave that data to Cambridge Analytica, which the users had not agreed to. And there's a big question here about, like, how how does Facebook audit these relationships with third parties? And the company, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's at odds with their business model. I mean, their business model is all about making sure that the information that people give Facebook, uh, their demographic information, their interests, their groups that they've joined, all that information can be used with marketers to target them ads. That's like that's like the promise of the free internet, right? You get the internet for free. These companies get your data and they get to target you ads based on that data. Um, advertisers, I spoke to one last night. They actually want Facebook to show users that they are good with their data privacy. Advertisers don't want to be advertising on a service that users have a bad feeling about. Um, it's not going to be good for their business. And I would well, you tell me. I mean, with the revelation that Alex Stamos is going to be leaving the company in, in August, uh, didn't he lead a group of engineers that found out in June of 2016 that, and that was the month the Democratic National Committee announced it had been attacked by Russian hackers? They said, yeah, there's a lot of Russian activity, and that they actually had people paying for these fake accounts. Yeah, I actually I was speaking with the the head of Newsfeed in August of that year, and he said, "Oh yeah, we've been starting to look into misinformation on Facebook and the spread of it." I mean, the company was starting to see the signs. Just remember Facebook's position at that time. The company was responding to a controversy yeah. over its its news curation right. uh, that it may be silencing conservative viewpoints. So the the company, the company's reaction to crises is very, uh, very reactionary. They don't yeah. want any bad news out there. They want yeah. everyone to feel like they are this unbiased platform right. for anything. Sarah Fryer, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your fantastic reporting. Sarah Fryer is a technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Trade tariffs and China. Here to help us understand the current situation and what is likely to unfold this week is Andrew Mayeda. He is our global economy reporter for Bloomberg News. He can be followed on Twitter at a Mayeda, and he joins us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Maybe just bring everyone up to date on what is going on between the United States and China ver uh, as it relates to uh, trade and tariff wars. Sure. So uh, the U.S. administration has been investigating whether China uh, basically disregards U.S. intellectual property and forces American companies to transfer technological know-how to the Chinese. And that investigation is nearing a close. A uh, report has been submitted to the president, and he's considering a number of different options, including uh, $60 billion in tariffs on Chinese products.
All right, Andrew, I was struck by a top headline today on the Bloomberg Terminal about how China is pledging not to interfere or violate intellectual property rules with any foreign companies coming to the nation, basically saying, guys, let's just work this out. We're not going to do anything bad. Please trust us. Does that does that work? Does that fly? I think Larry Kudlow, uh, who just replaced Gary Cohen, is going to say, this is positive. This is encouraging. We should work with this. We should sit down at the negotiating table where the world's two biggest economies, you know, that global recovery is actually going pretty well. Let's not mess this up. I think Peter Navarro is going to say, these guys have made promises before. They haven't lived up to them. They've been making promises since 2001, since they joined the WTO, and talk is cheap. Well, Andrew, can you give us some specific examples of products that might be hit with these kinds of tariffs? I mean, I was looking at things like textiles, and the details there are really astounding because it you know, really goes everything from the kind of fabrics that you might use in uh, clothing uh, to the kinds of products that, boy, I mean— uh, You'd never, you know, whisk brooms, ethyl alcohol, milk and cream, olives, tuna. I mean, it, it is an, a dizzying array of products. Yeah, my understanding is they're looking at everything from shoes, apparel, uh, travel goods, so we're talking luggage, to, you know, higher-end consumer electronics. Uh, I understand that one way uh, USCR is looking at it is they're taking China's own uh, economic plan, the Made in China 2025 plan, and they're looking at uh, areas of technology that China is trying to lead in, and they're trying to target those areas for tariffs. All right. So uh, one thing as we uh, watch the headlines coming out of the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires uh, in Argentina that's ongoing right now, there actually is a greater uh, call for trade, free trade and, and trade uh, tariffs loosening or any other restrictions uh, being sort of released among com- countries other than the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that and how much that could potentially offset talk of a trade war, tariffs or other rhetoric that we're hearing out of the White House? Yeah, I think that overall, actually, the the, the situation for the global economy and uh, trade volumes is pretty positive. Um, for the first uh, year in a long time, uh, trade uh, growth in trade volumes actually outpaced uh, uh, growth in, in overall output. So in other words, trade resumed being an engine of global growth. So So things are actually going well. And I think that most countries in the world don't want a trade war. Uh, what's unusual about the situation is you have the U.S., which has been kind of at the vanguard of creating the current global trading system, basically trying to blow it up from within um, and pushing for major changes. And you have China, which in, for years has kind of been seen as a pariah, pushing for the status quo. So how exactly that equilibrium works out at a place like the G20 It'll be interesting to see how it works out. How, uh, uh, Andrew, any any word or any any inkling of how does it work out between the United States and, uh, let's say, Canada and Mexico in terms of exemptions on some of the already announced tariffs? Well, Canada and Mexico have been excluded from the uh, steel tariffs that President Trump announced uh, earlier this month. Um, but 
President Trump, as kind of is his want, has added um, a, a condition to it. He's basically said, look, you're excluded for now. I'm recognizing that you're important security uh, partners, but I want a good NAFTA. And if you don't give me a good NAFTA, then you know that that exclusion sh- could go away. So the, the, it's kind of creating a bit of a, a, a storm ha- hanging over the NAFTA talks. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. But boy, Andrew, I think you're going to end up in the nitty gritty. I mean, I've been looking at things like the commission voting on things like rubber bands from China, Sri Lanka and Thailand, as well as digital video receivers. So it really just covers the, uh, you know, an entire encyclopedia of, of products and services. And there's an encyclopedia of agencies that have to weigh in on this, which is going to be part of the issue, getting yeah. all of them to agree on, on rubber bands. And, you know, I'm going to follow. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow Andrew Maeda on Twitter. I'll follow you back. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Andrew Maeda, our global economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. And, uh, well, we'll have to see what happens the rest of the week. $60 billion potential uh, hit to, uh, to trade. We do have a Federal Reserve meeting that is underway in Washington, D.C., and will conclude tomorrow, most likely with an additional rate hike. Here to talk about what we can expect and what we ought to be paying attention to is Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ira, let's start by taking a temperature of debt markets. What are they expecting Jay Powell to do tomorrow in his first press conference as chairman of the Federal Reserve? Yeah, so so a uh, like you mentioned, Lisa, a hike is all but baked in the cake here. Um, the the shock would be if they didn't hike. Actually, uh, we're we're now a hundred percent priced for a hike tomorrow. Um, the other thing that the market's uh, going to be looking for is will some of the hawkish comments that Jay Powell made during the Humphrey Hawkins testimony and a number of others have have hinted at will that um, show up in the summary of economic projections that are also be released with the statement tomorrow, and uh, and then Jay Powell will have to uh, kind of describe them in more detail during his press conference, because the market is now pricing for five hikes by the end of 2019. And I think that that's pretty, uh, uh, that's pretty interesting, because when we talked just a couple of weeks ago, the, the market was only pricing for four. So we're pricing in a full other hike now um, over the next year and a half or so. Ira, I'm wondering if you could bring into this conversation the global issues having to do with the reduction in quantitative easing, because uh, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi uh, announcing that he's going to phase out those monthly asset purchases by the end of 2018. Yeah, so so I think the ECB action is is. Yeah, kind of realistic, but they're trying to temper that with, um, you know, saying, look, we're going to we're going to stop our asset purchases. We're going to try to avoid a taper tantrum. And so far, they kind of have. Um, I think we had our taper tantrum for for that last June. Um, but but by saying that, hey, we're still not going to hike for a very long time, I think that that's tempered the expectations of of how steep the yield curve can get in Europe. And and that is the one thing that could probably significantly steepen the U.S. yield curve is um, is if if European rates back up quite a lot. So you still have very low interest rates in Germany and a lot of developed Europe. And if those were to move 40, 50, 60 basis points, those would have significant uh, knock-on effects to uh, U.S. rates. But so far, it's been... Um, 
pretty orderly, at least. Uh, you know, you've seen a little modestly higher rates, but they haven't really spiked higher like they did uh, last June when he first suggested that uh, that that quantitative easing might be coming to an end. Okay, now take that uh, possibility of uh, the effects of uh, a reduction in asset purchases by the European Central Bank, and uh, how do you factor in the risk that Shinzo Abe, uh, Prime Minister of Japan, He's got a political scandal that he's dealing with, and that could also affect what the the governor of the Bank of Japan, Kuroda, is forced to do. They may uh, be thinking about unwinding uh, their stimulus package. Yeah, so I, I think you know Japan's an interesting case because it's it's been a long time since the since the actions within domestically within Japan have really played out on a global horizon. Um, you know, it's certainly affected the yen and uh, versus the euro and the dollar. It's affected um, you know Japanese rates, obviously keeping uh, with, with the Bank of Japan saying, hey, we're going to keep our ten-year rates near zero and we're going to buy whatever we need to to do that. Um, it, it's it's a, it's very unclear uh, what would happen if they let their 10-year rate, say, go up from, you know, 10, 12 basis points up to, um, uh, well, right now it's at four, but up to, say, 50 or 60 basis points, would that have a knock-on effect globally? And, and it's, it's less clear what the, what the relationship of, of uh, the Japanese market is to the rest of the world. And yeah. I suspect it'll be less than um, some people fear. So, Ira, I want to focus on something that is happening. It's not a potential, and uh, it's actually raising a lot of eyebrows. We've talked about this before, the gapping out spread between LIBOR and OIS. Translation, the cost of borrowing dollars has surged, even related, even when compared with uh, the overnight index swap rate, which is basically uh, the Fed's rate. This is generating a lot of... uh, eyebrows being raised and questions. We've talked about it. You don't think it's banking stress. You don't think it's much to worry about. But Citigroup came out with a report that said that there are real world negative consequences from this increase in uh, LIBOR, which really is a benchmark for trillions of dollars of assets. Do you agree? Yeah, for, well, for sure. It's raising the borrowing cost for anyone who borrows at a floating rate in particular. Um, this is raising the cost. So this could be raising the cost for people who have mortgages that are going to reset soon, for example. And if those reset the LIBOR, it's certainly uh, affecting people who have credit card debt that's based on, on LIBOR and, and anyone who issues floating rate notes that are, again, LIBOR-based. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of, LIBOR, a lot of floating rate note issuance um, is uh, so so companies that issue these floating rate notes, a lot of them swap those back into fixed. So what they do is, especially when interest rates were lower, so anyone who issued, say, a year or two ago, when interest rates were very low, they might have issued a floating rate note because it was cheap financing, because investors said, I don't want to buy fixed rate debt when Treasury yields are at 1.5%, So, but I'll, I'm happy to buy a floating rate note because that protects me when the Fed starts to hike. But then um, but then those companies then do an interest rate swap that flo- f- floats it back in the fixed. So it's probably not uh, it's it's not like it, there's a systemic risk here, but for some borrowers, certainly it's increasing um, their cost of borrowing a little bit more. It's it's kind of like another two Fed hikes have happened for borrowers who uh, who tend to borrow against LIBOR. Thanks very much for being with us. Ira Jersey is always an expert when it comes to interest rates. He's our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.